You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and welcome to Five Things That Make Life Better for the week of April 17th. Friends, I hope you've been managing as well as can be. I have been staying inside my apartment. It's now about five weeks, and it's starting to feel normal. One of my fears as we got used to living under an unpredictable president was that we would begin to normalize our new reality. Even before there were life or death implications of staying home, we've been shrugging our shoulders as truths became alternative facts, as riots were caused by some fine people, and the double standards of a self-dealing family with no consequences became more and more brazen. I feel that my job is more resistor than podcaster, and sometimes it overwhelms me. However, this is an interview show, and we have a great guest today. It's the writer Bess Bell Kalb, well known for her humor pieces in The New Yorker and for being a staff writer on The Kimmel Show. Now she's a novelist. Her book is called Nobody Will Tell You This But Me, and she is our guest when we come back right after this. Last week, I recommended five different nonprofit organizations that were really helping out now that crisis is upon us and everywhere around us. This week, I want to talk to you about No Kid Hungry, because as the coronavirus has closed schools nationwide, millions of children in need have lost the school meals they depend on. You know, a lot of kids would not eat breakfast or lunch were it not for school. For many, it's the only healthy food they might get in a day. No Kid Hungry has a plan to feed these kids, but they need your help. Donate now at nokidhungry.org to help feed America's children during this crisis and in the months to come. That's nokidhungry.org. Thank you. Now you have written a memoir about your darling, beloved grandma, Bobby, called Nobody Will Tell You This But Me. And I tore through it, Bess, and I feel like we didn't have the same grandma, not at all, but there's so many similarities. And I just love that this was the first book you wanted to write, because I know you write for Jimmy Kimmel. And I know you've had offers to write long form before. And I guess your grandma is your spirit animal. Yeah, Yeah, um, that is definitely one way to put it. um, She, I think the the book is really a, a book that she had ingrained in me since I was little, that this was the book that she had dispatched me to write. Mm-hmm. And it was almost a, an assignment that I had been given from birth. So the, though there have been other writing opportunities and ones that I've taken and pursued, this was the one that really felt like the, the sort of ultimate test of my abilities as both a writer and a granddaughter. Uh-huh. Write her life down in her voice as best I could. Well, one gets the impression from reading it that you spent a tremendous amount of time with her and that she was, as you say, she was always telling you the stories, telling you the stories of her mother, of her grandfather, of her brothers, of her uncles, of the world. She was really instructing you in carrying on her legacy in a way because 
she and your mom did not have the closest of relationships for most of their lives. That's right. I think that's a really good way of putting it, instructing me. I, it really it, it really was was what she was doing. And it felt like a task that I had been given. These people that she talked about, her brothers and her mother and father, were people that I never met. They were all dead long before I was born. Right. Um, so for me, they were characters in her story. And I think they the richness of her storytelling and the specificity of her anecdotes and her her memories made them real to me. And so as a writer, it was a pretty easy act of conjuring to just sort of say, okay, I'm basically going to report the report what, what I know from right. as close to a primary source as I had. The other very interesting thing about the book is not only is it your grandmother's words told in her voice, but it's all matrilineal, really. One would never know that one had a brother. <clears throat> right, Bess? Or... Yes, I love my brother very, very much. I and know you I love do. him so much. I love I love him so much that I left him out of this book entirely. Right. So um, this book reads <laughs> like a woman had a husband who she adored and had mm -hmm. one daughter. Does your mom have brothers or sisters? Yes, and actually they they are they are mentioned but not by not by name. And that's also purposeful. My mom has she my grandmother has two sons and a daughter. And the idea to write a matrilineal love story uh, was sort of my observation of a sort of a real gap in the storytelling marketplace, which is men write their histories, men write history. And women who maybe aren't the ones who are changing building infrastructure the way my grandfather did, or, you know, being a great doctor the way my, my father was and is and um, you know, sort of cementing themselves in the fabric of society in a very public way. There are women in the home who are creating life and raising the next generation of women who are expected to do the same thing. And it happens um, often, and especially in my grandmother's generation, it happens unacknowledged and unheralded. And so a matrilineal love story brings those women to the forefront of an, of a narrative and of history because it's their history. So I, I think in, yeah, focusing on women was a deliberate choice and one that I, I thought mattered. And also, I would say that some people, I'm only thinking aloud here, but some people are better parents or grandparents to, you know, I think my grandmother was a better grandma to me than she was to my brother's because she didn't really understand boys so well. You know, it, yeah. it does happen. It does oh, yeah. happen. I mean, there's a real bond. And um, also, it is true that so many people I know who are grandparents say things like, if I'd known how great it was, I would have skipped the kids altogether and gone <laughs> straight to grandchildren. And it does seem like the connection that your grandma had with you, I, I can't imagine that not that she didn't have enough love for everybody, but I can't imagine the time spent with you that she could also spend with your brother and her other grandchildren. Yeah, I mean, I guess the I was born in sort of a crisis point for my mother. My mom was a second year medical resident in a program that only had a few other women in their entire history. Um, and so there was no such thing as 
a real maternity leave. Um, there was barely such thing as being pregnant. In fact, my mom concealed her pregnancy up until it was comical. Um, and so my grandma got this call when I was born and basically said, mom, what do I do? Am I just going to leave this infant with a stranger help? And my grandma got on a plane as she would tell me anytime I remotely bothered her throughout my childhood. She got on a plane. She wasn't a young woman. And she flew every Tuesday from Florida where she lived to New York City where my my parents lived. Um, My father was also in the same medical residency at the time. So he he was out as well. And she would watch me. And you know, I had two wonderful parents who certainly raised me, but I, I would often say my grandma raised me because um, she would sit there. This is a detail that isn't in the book, but she would sit there in the apartment by the hospital and we would watch Miami Vice together. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, so when, you um, were, when you were how old? Um, six weeks. Ah. <laughs> and um, And then she would tell me all about her plane ride and the people on the plane and who was irritating. And she would tell me about people at the club and she would tell me about how she did in bridge. And she would tell me about how she did in golf and she would complain about my mother. Um, And that's what she was doing since before I could even see uh, two feet in front of my own face. Um, And yeah, she did. She did continue to spend a lot of time with me after that, because I think in bonding with me as an infant so closely, that just became the established norm in our relationship that she, that she was there to hold me and take care of me whenever I needed it. And so she also became this source of fun that, um, that someone who is uniquely not a parent, um, can, can be, which is, you know, there are rules of the house and then all bets are off as soon as grandma comes over, which, Um, you have you have a new grandson, right? I do. I do. Do you find that? Yeah, do you find that there are certain indulgences and um, <laughs> and treats that maybe your your child wouldn't allow their their baby to experience? But well, we haven't got, we haven't gotten there yet because he's really a baby. Yeah, and he lives in California, so I'm not his regular babysitter. I told sure. them I would. I told them if they stayed in New York, I would yep. do a lot of that. But yep. anyway, so no, I understand. I mean, my grandmother definitely spoiled me in some ways. The world that she came from, which you really do describe as vividly as I can imagine, is a world that doesn't exist anymore. And the kind of uh, both hard scrabble school of life combined with being culturally and biologically Jewish combined with real upward mobility. You know, we don't hear that story anymore because either people are making money who are guys in hoodies who are making giant money and there's not so much soul as there was in that generation and my grandma's generation and my parents' generation. And you know what I loved about the book is your grandma and her husband, your grandpa, weren't entitled. 
you know, they worked hard to get it going. You describe a scene when they lived in an attic. Yeah. Above her mother, right? Yep, that's right. That's exactly right. And there was um, a and yeah. there was a storm and the windows broke and their whole apartment, I guess a small whole apartment was <laughs> kind of destroyed and your grandma looked at her husband and said, Well, this is your new office. Yeah. And I'm that, gonna yeah. be your new bookkeeper. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, which is which is which is so great. I mean, she really did feel that, and one gets the feeling that they were a great team. They really were. I, I can't emphasize enough how instrumental my grandmother was to her husband's success and to my grandfather's success. They they both came from nothing, but it was due to her sort of ambition for him and and cunning and her insistence on a better life that they were able to make one out of absolutely nothing. I mean, my grandma was so poor when she was growing up. She The only meat that she ate was because a cousin worked in the meatpacking district and shipping and he would sort of give them graft of like awful, yeah. essentially, like right. intestines and intestines cheeks and- um, from the trucks. And I, I, you know, I feel like it, the idea of being born into extreme poverty, right, and then dying in this condo on the ocean in Florida is this astronomical it's the Ameri- trajectory. That it's the American dream. It is. It's the American dream, but it was. It was also her specific dream, and and she got. She achieved it. And it wasn't something that she felt entitled to ever. So, uh, something that she would say growing up is money is round and it rolls. <laughs> and, you know, that, that there was, a, there was, I think when you come from nothing, there's a sense that it could all go away because yes. your foundation is nothing. You don't believe that this is, that, that wealth or, or comfort is the norm. And you don't um, trust that yeah. you can hold on to it because right, right, you don't have a history yeah. with it. Definitely not. This isn't something that was passed on to you. This isn't something that was even an, a, a an imagined reality growing up, or for anyone she knew. I mean, my grandma grew up in a neighborhood in an immigrant community. Like her parents were immigrants from Russia, um, technically Belarus, and the Pale of Settlement um, in the eighteen eighties, and then. Her neighbors, I, in researching the book, I dug up census data for her street in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And I knew her street because I have a copy of her learner's permit from oh when she my. was 16 years old. One West Street in Greenpoint. Um, and now it's right it's on a, the water. Which now it, it's probably, um, oh, I don't know, a Sephora Oh, even worse, it's luxury condos. And I went the week she died. Um, I went on this pilgrimage with her, with my best friend, um, Victoire. Um, she and I went on this sort of Bobby Bell odyssey, and we took a ferry from Manhattan to Greenpoint and <laughs> crossed the water, um, and, and which I had never done before. I grew up in New York, and I had never been on the ferry to Greenpoint, um, and went to One West Street. We went to the corner um, where her, where the ramshackle building was and it's these four thousand dollar a month studio apartments <laughs> that are lead certified and uh oh yeah come with every I, amenity oh yeah no i, I walked in I, in disbelief i walked in to this sort of this industrial chic 
uh, light-filled atrium that was the lobby. And a, a very cool guy behind the counter said, um, visiting? And I sort of stammered, yes. <laughs> he said, who are you visiting? And I said, my grandma used to live here. Right. And he thought she was a, a, a visual, a, a real estate stager from last oh, week. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah all the way yeah. back from a week ago. One of the things that is so interesting about the book and the way you've shaped it is there are periods of narrative where you're channeling, I, I fully believe you're channeling your grandmother telling her story and her mother's story and your mother's story in her words. And then you you interject exchanges you've had with her from phone calls, from voicemails, and emails even. Now, did you save all the voicemails you could while she yeah, was alive? I, I, I saved as I saved as many as my phone could hold. Um, and I still have them saved. So if I'm not deleting the like top eight voicemails in my in my voicemail inbox, I people can't leave me a voicemail. Um, it says my mailbox is full. It's full um, because Bobby Bell is dispensing her wisdom to you. That's right. She lives in she lives in it. Um, she lives in my voicemail inbox. And yes, I understand there is a cloud. I just don't trust it. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, I, I'm, I, and also, I think the act of deleting one of her voicemails, even though I've, I've uploaded them to my computer and emailed them to myself, um, the act of deleting them feels wrong. Um, I can't do it. No, I so understand. So they'll stay. My mother's yeah. voicemail uh. is completely clogged because she has her best friend last few uh, voicemails, and she does not want to get rid of them. And believe me, I know less about saving a voice file than you do. And it would be it would be disastrous. I get it. That's right. I get it. That's right. Are you able to listen to them? Or are they still too? Yes. Upsetting? No, you can't. So I had to for um, in in writing the in writing the book. um, There were sort of many moments of catharsis um, in the channeling that you mentioned, you know, writing in her voice was extremely cathartic. I felt very close to her. There were several moments of catharsis in the process of conceiving of and then writing um, the book. And, um, you know, in in the channeling that you spoke about, um, in writing in her voice, I was able to feel very close to her and, and feel her presence. Um, to the extent that sometimes my husband would walk into the room where I was writing and I would be crying um, or laughing. It uh-huh. was a very uh, manic experience. Well, she um, was a very funny then, woman. I mean, she, she was. She was hilarious. Yeah she, yeah. yeah, she cracked herself up and she cracked me up. Um, I get that from her. Um, nobody laughs at my jokes more than I do. <laughs> and in recording the audiobook, um, I was asked to listen to the voicemails. And I, well, I was asked, to, to share some of the voicemails to see if maybe there would be a few that we could throw in as, as extras or as, as to have some, some color along the way. And I said, sure. And then I took out my phone and I sat in my room for an hour just staring at it um, because that was going to be the first time that I had listened to her mm-hmm. voicemail since she died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I prepared myself for an intensely sad experience and I even remember telling my husband like I'm going to listen to my grandma's voicemails don't come in this is going to be really hard for me and he sort of went yes of course okay and he told me that five minutes later he heard this howling from 
our, our bedroom and didn't know what, whether to charge in, um, I was laughing. I was, her voicemails were hilarious. And I, I was in tears because I was, and I was, I was holding my stomach. Um, and I, I couldn't believe how funny they were. Um, she would call and say things like, and these were not voicemails that were in the book. She, one of the voicemails was Bessie. Hi, I saw the picture of your backyard. It's beautiful, but you must have an umbrella in the table. If you don't, you're going to turn bright red. (laughs) If you don't, you're going to turn bright red and don't say, I never told you so. Get an umbrella. (laughs) And charge it to me. That was the first one I listened. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And try to use my card. Yeah. Um, and I, from there, it just went on. Um, well, she always, didn't she tell you you shouldn't live in some place because your hair would frizz? Oh, but the, yeah, San Francisco. Under, she thought San that Francisco, was, yeah. your hair would frizz. But of course, the underlying yeah. message was, don't move so far away from me. A hundred percent. The sun in Los Angeles, is that That was not a voicemail about an umbrella. That was a voicemail about getting the hell out, out of the state. Right, right. Well, she always had a little agenda with you. Oh, yeah. A little is a is, is one way to put it. It was pretty overt. Now, I know you love your brother and that you're very close and that the relationship is all fair and, and, and healthy. But what was her relationship with your brother while you were absorbing as much of her as you could get? I mean, he would really have to answer that. He has his own private and personal relationship with her. Um, and my grandmother had seven grandchildren right including me um and she loved them all fiercely and loyally and all of them have stories similar to mine um about her the tenacity that with which she loved and um the the meddling and the the care and the worry she extended that to all of her grandchildren her children her friends and people she didn't even know um, so when the, she would uh, call you three times a day to say, Bessie, are you wearing sunscreen? Or Bessie, mm-hmm. I don't think the dress you picked is flattering or or whatever. She was also mm-hmm. calling six other grandchildren she, with her ideas for them. She was always trying to improve their lives because she knew better. My grandma lived with the phone in her lap and the phone book open. She was constantly in touch with everybody that she loved and was deeply involved in everybody's lives to the extent that if one person in my family was pregnant and told my grandma, Uh everyone in my family would know. Yeah. She was truly central command. Yeah. I don't don't see that as a strange thing at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's... That was her role, right? To let everybody know, to keep everybody together. Yeah, she's the Jewish Paul Revere. Now, (laughs) that's very funny. Now, um, she is a typical Jewish grandma to my eyes, but I don't know if she's, would you say that when you described your grandmother, tell your friends about her or told your friends about her or introduced them to her, did she... Did they all come away thinking, oh, yeah, she's a Jewish grandmother? Or was it a little bit more nuanced? Oh, well, they knew she was a character. I mean, there, I have a, a friend and I were in the back of a 
lift once and my grandma called and I knew it was going to be about the, the same fight that whatever she and I were having that day, the, I need to do this one thing. I need to do X. She knew that I was not going to do it. And so she was going to call me until I relented. And I just put my phone on speakerphone so that, um, my friend could listen and his mouth was open. <laughs> he grew up, um, yeah, yeah. He grew up Mormon in Utah. He's my dear friend and writing partner. Uh, or office mate at, at Kimmel, um, Bridger Weiniger. And he had no context for Jewish grandma. Um, I, I, I don't know if he grew up and knew a Jew, um, but he heard her uh, on this call and he was just covering his mouth, trying not to laugh out loud. She's so funny, but also she's so direct. And I think oh, yes. in other cultures, people aren't as direct. This doesn't Maybe, look good think, on you. Yeah. This, You should do this. You shouldn't do that. I want the best for you. Why don't you want to do the best for you? <laughs> she, yeah, she had I, issues with your husband, right, at first? Oh, well, um, not not the second she met him, uh, she was more on his side than mine. But, you know, I, this, I, I married a non-Jew, and I'm one of the only people in my entire lineage to ever do that on, on either side of my family. Um, and so this was, this could have been a cataclysm. Um, but ultimately I think in, in her most loving and most Jewish act, she, she embraced the person that would make her, her grandchild happy. And it didn't hurt that he was majoring in business at the time. (laughs) It's almost Jewish. And, you know, you go through the whole arc of your courtship through the voicemails and it's really really charming it always makes me wonder how our grandparents knew how to find someone they loved without the efforts that we all made in our lives they didn't go to couple counseling they didn't live together to see how they connected they didn't you know they they barely knew one another when they got married which is the case of your grandparents Right. Well, my my grandparents um, definitely courted each other. They, they dated courted, for... but they didn't know each other for too long before. No. Yeah, it's true. I think I think maybe you're. I think this is almost excusing her impatience with why my husband and I dated for years before we got married. You're right. I think she came from a generation where you knew when you knew. You knew when um, you knew. Right. And yeah, she she and... kept saying, "When is your engagement?" When you were uh-huh. just interested in having a relationship you weren't even thinking of sure. marriage she probably right. she probably even, pushed you yeah. to marry before you even considered it well she also was good at reading my heart um whether it was over you know plate of fried calamari or a dress or a husband she knew that when there was something that was desirable she would get on my she would just sort of be over my shoulder going let's go for it Um, and so I don't think she would have pushed me to make any kind of commitment to anything that would make me unhappy. Oh, right. Um, No, it was, it was all because she knew what you wanted maybe better than you knew what you wanted. I think in many ways she did. My, my grandma also, to, to give you a sense of, of just how Jewish this got around, around my, my wedding, um, she pushed me to get, she, she, I almost said she pushed me to get married. I'm not going to say that, but she, um, she, um, she was 
excited about the idea of me being married to the point of hysteria. And um, <laughs> she, she, um, she got very ill um, in the months before my wedding um, to the extent that we almost changed our wedding location um, to be closer to her. Ah. Um, or at least to be more access to be more accessible. Right. It was on an island, and we we almost changed it to the mainland um, because it might have been too difficult for her to get on a to get on a ferry or a plane. Right. Um, and it was touch and go. Uh, this was in 2013. Wow. Um, and the week after my wedding, I got a call from her. And she was at Neiman Marcus. She was running around. She knew that there was a sale, but she thinks it was in the wrong department. It's nothing is on sale. In, uh, there, there are no cashmere sweaters on sale. They're all full price. She's not going to buy full price. But I, she was going a mile a minute <laughs> running around at Neiman Marcus. And I just sort of held the phone away from my head and said, I cured her. I was just going to say the wedding, ma- the <laughs> marriage made her better. I mean, it was the rally heard around the world, and she and um, she unbelievable. and she lived for yeah, years. And she went thereafter. on to live another half decade. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, she also danced the hora at my wedding with more exuberance than any of my friends. She, you know, she was dosy doing. She almost um, dislocated my arm at my wedding. Oh, that's that's a beautiful grandmother granddaughter story. That is just a beautiful yeah. story. Best, sure, um, but it's also there's nothing more invigorating than getting what she wanted. Well, yeah, that was a victory. <laughs> that was a victory for Bobby. Yeah, it was a victory. Yeah. Um, you're you're very gentle and very interesting on the subject of your mother and your grandma because they had a lot of friction. And of course, you tell the story from your grandma's point of view, not your mom's. But they did get much, much closer after you were born. Yes. I guess your mom realized um, what a sacrifice it is to have a child. Yeah, entirely. I think I think in in having my own child, I was surprised to be flooded with so much empathy and sympathy for my mother immediately in in the days after giving birth. I sort of, I looked at my child and went, oh God, this is why she was so goddamn worried all the time. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. And I can't exactly speak f- for her, um, even though my mother was the primary source of, of this book and, and her relying on her Inter, you know, unrecorded conversations with her was integral to writing this. But the days and weeks after I was born was a time when she was able to see what motherhood meant. And in doing that, was able to see what her mother saw in her. Right. Um, and I think she was able to uncover love that maybe my grandmother hadn't been so forward with during my mother's childhood, my mom right. innately knew that the love was there. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, I think there was also, there's also a, reli- a reliance that happens as a woman who, who gives birth. You, you look to your mother almost immediately. For um, advice. Yeah. The person who did this before you. Right. Who's responsible for you. And I think that my mom in having me was able to rely on my grandma in a very real and immediate way for which is something that she had spent a rebellious childhood and, and teenagehood resisting, 
suddenly at her most vulnerable, she needed her mom. And her mom, who was in where, Florida, would fly to New York every week for a few days to take care of you. I mean, that's a big, that's a big gift for... um, It's a big schlep. It's a big schlep. So now that you're a mom, are there certain lessons of your grandma that you feel like you want to very deliberately bring into your son's life? Yeah, I mean, I really... I dedicated the book to him. Um, I, I said, thank you, Grandma Ann, for my son. And I want the book to serve as his sort of touchstone and, and his, I guess, Rosetta Stone for, for her. The same way that my grandma gave me stories of her mother and that her mother was very alive and her brothers were alive for me. Um, so I hope the lessons in the book are lessons that he takes to heart. But I also think... This poor kid is going to grow up hearing all about her constantly. Um, You know, he'll be like, oh, well, my grandma would never let you do that. My grandma would never let you go without an undershirt. Right. You know, my grandma would never let you trick or treat without a jacket. (laughs) I don't care if this is what Iron Man wore. Iron Man doesn't live in a 60 degree wind, you know, whatever. Right. Right. It's a desert and there's no atmosphere. You're going to be freezing. Right. Um, right. I mean, I'm already turning into her around there. The one of the real public fights that my husband and I have had since uh, welcoming our child into the world was when we were walking around our neighborhood. And apparently I have no memory doing apparently the entire time we were walking. I was I was putting my baby's hat further and further on his head. And he just looked at me and he goes, you know what? He's okay. <laughs> and, I, and I flew off the head. I was like, he's freezing. Are you? I, I literally spent the entire walk um, adjusting and nudging um, because I thought the, the baby was cold. And I live in Los Angeles. I think it was maybe 64 degrees. Right. And was, a, a brisk, a brisk day. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was, it was room temperature at coldest. I, I remember so vividly my mother saying when I was a little girl, Lisa, I'm cold. Go put on a sweater. Yep. 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 That's, yep. That is, you know, that's why we have survived. Exactly. How old is your baby? He's almost six months old oh, next week. Wow. Well, congratulations yeah. for giving Thank birth. You. He's a genius. <laughs> to your genius son and for giving <laughs> birth to this wonderful, feel good, feel wonderful, nostalgic family book of it's really intimate. It's really lovely. You've done such a wonderful mm. job. I feel that I know your family now. Thank you so much for saying that. I mean so much to hear from you, um, to hear that from you. So thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope my family does as well. (laughs) Yeah, I hope they do too. Well, obviously they've read it, right? (laughs) Yeah, they have. They've read it. But now all the, wait, I've written down all the family names. The Brazel, Oteski, Otis, Bell, Kalb stories come to life to the public. And that's really great. It's a wonderful story. And It'll make a wonderful movie or play. I've already cast it in oh, my mind. Oh, thank you. I, yeah. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm working on it. So. I, I'm sure you are. So now, Bess, young Bess, as I like to call you, yes. uh, it's time for your five things that make your life better. I have yes. your list right in front of me. I hope you do, too. I am pulling it up right now. I, have, I had my computer closed. I'm opening it. Your list is great. Uh, your first one made me laugh because I remember, I, you know, I had three 
science experiments, I call them, <laughs> my exhibits. And I thought my house was taken over by the the Fisher-Price monsters. I mean, there's a while that your living room is all plastic crap. But oh, num- yeah. number one for you? My number one thing that makes my life better, unfortunately, is the hideous Fisher-Price, I'm going to give its full, its Christian name, Fisher-Price <laughs> Rainforest Friends Jumperoo in my living room. You know what? Uh, because of, yeah. It probably sprawls all over your living room. Oh, it's enormous. I don't have a big living room, but I have a very big jumperoo. Um, you know what embarrassed and, me when I had l- babies was that the names, you don't really want to say, honey, can you please no. pass my Fisher Price Rainforest Friends jumperoo? I want oh, to put it Same in. Same jumperoo. I know. Yeah. I know. It's an indignity. Um, it, it is. And, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a nightmare. It's got to um, change. It's got to change. And you're one of the people who can make a change. Jumperoo yeah, just... maybe just call it sort of a, an aerobic companion. Yes, an aerobic <laughs> companion. A, right. a calorie a calorie converter. Center. That's great. Yeah, That's but great. Jumperoo. Yeah, a sort of, oh. yeah, a motor skills development situation. A, a uh-huh. motor skills <laughs> uh, improvement mode model. That's right. Uh, That's right. a transducer. No, instead of, it's, yeah, it's a jumperoo. It's the damn jumperoo. It's a and damn it jumperoo. is a godsend. Yeah. It, you know, it is it is something created by both the devil and God <laughs> together. Yes, it is. And, and in this jumperoo, I'm taking it, it's the same sprawling, hideous Fisher Price Rainforest Friends jumperoo that my son and daughter in law have. Your baby can lie under it and have literally hours of fun. Uh, number two. Oh, the block button on Twitter. Okay. Um, Tell me more. The block button is a double-edged sword. I've been blocked. Um, I've been blocked by the president of the United States, which was illegal. And um, he had to unblock me or his, his minions. I'm sure it wasn't him, but somebody unblocked me. But uh, so for a while, I crusaded against the block button privately. Um, oh, I see where um, you're going now. <laughs> there is no better way going. to. I think I think Twitter is in many ways a great tool for, you know, wondering if there was just an earthquake. There is no website that'll tell you faster. And it's obviously a great source of community that it has been an instrument of revolution. It has given people a voice who otherwise wouldn't have one. It's also a breeding ground for some of the worst trolls on the internet. Right. And people and who also, don't have the courage to say what they want to say or insult somebody under their own name and photo. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It is a, it is cowardice, exactly. And so to deal with uh, to deal with those people, the block button exists. And there are days where I'll tweet something that's mildly political or overtly political. Um, and then um, instead of poisoning my life with horrifying replies, I just immediately block them and go on with my day. That's a beautiful Breastfeeding story. to the Irishman. <laughs> you know, it's a beautiful day. It's kind of like the Fisher-Price Rainforest Friends Jumperoo. <laughs> it's both it's good hilarious. and Ooh. poison. You know, you know what? one of the little satanic buttons should be a block button on that jumper. Oh, that's a great idea. He can practice for the next generation of digital natives. For the next generation, right? That's a great idea. Jumperoo 2.0. Yeah, yeah. Then the name could be. I don't need to write a second book. And also, 
Also, it'll be a longer name. Yeah, exactly. Serves them right. The new and improved Fisher Price Rainforest <gasps> Friends Jumperoo. Beautiful. Yeah. It, has, it has that classic Fisher Price ring to it. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, number mm-hmm. three. Uh, this is the most important item on, on the list. It's And I'm going to out my favorite restaurant. And I'm upset about doing that. But I also have to be honest with you in, in what is things that makes my life better it is this it's the rigatoni it's the rigatoni bolognese from speranza uh, on hyperion in silver lake speranza is a restaurant that has no signage it looks like a parking lot you have to go through a tarp to get there it's all outside and it is just this handmade pasta from this northern italian couple it is so good it you can't physically spend more than 20 dollars there um, and the rigatoni bolognese is a tonic, and it should be covered by health insurance. Wow. It's so good. Well, one so of my good. exhibits lives in Silver Lake, so oh. I may have to go I bet, try I bet it they out. know Speranza. Then she probably does, yeah. Um, good. So I'm going to try that at Speranza. Number four. Yeah, since having a kid, um, I've become sort of militant with my, my closest female friends, and uh, I've ended up going on like two or three walks a week, and it's with just sort of the baby on my chest, and it's been really a great reprieve and a, a wonderful way to make it through the insanity that happens on the news and outside of our personal lives, taking time to to just walk and talk, and sometimes just walk and not talk with um right to para- to paraphrase a, a great christopher guest line yes um, uh, um is so important to me and um yeah. one of the best parts of parental leave has been really reconnecting with um female friends who i otherwise wouldn't see during the day right because um, you you work a long day I work a long day, and so meeting up for for you know people who who work long hours and who or who work office hours, your time to meet up with friends is when you're exhausted. Um, and having these days has been a wonderful, refreshing way to just enjoy friends in the sunshine. That's Makes wonderful. Life a lot better. That, that's wonderful. And number five. Ugh, I. I hate, I, 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 by the way, when I say what five is, there yes. might be a machine response in my house. Oh, that's right. So num- so whisper it, whisper is, it. Yeah, right. Number five, begrudgingly, Alexa. You can't hear can it, we, but there was we, the faintest murmur. <laughs> you can put it in. Did it say something? Yeah. Oh, no. She's listening to yeah, you. She's always listening. I Since having a kid, so Alexa was something that I did not want. And, and object to on every level imaginable. It is evil, it's listening, targeted advertisements, selling our personal data. Why would you want to have a digital spy in your home? The I, answer is handless convenience with a baby. Yeah, when you're I can holding... Just go, Alexa, pl- yeah, play Graceland by Paul Simon in baby room. And suddenly <laughs> we are dancing to Boy in the Bubble. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah I get it's it. Great. Yeah. Uh, Alexa, Alexa, what's, what's the, the weather? weather? Yeah, exactly. Jinx. Yeah, I don't have yep. it, but I I understand. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Well, Bess, 
my only regret is that we didn't get to see one another in person, but I have enjoyed this conversation thoroughly, and I wish you all the best as you embark on your book tour and you return to work and you have to take time away from the baby and let someone else watch (laughs) Miami Vice with him. But I love the book. It's called, again, Nobody Will Tell You This But Me. Best Calb, all the best to you. Thank you. And to you, Lisa. Thank Thank you. you. And now, my five things for the week. Number one, you. That's right, you. You make masks. You raise money for food for those doing the saintly work in the hospitals and the clinics. You applaud and strike pots and cheer every night at 7 p.m. And there are some of you who do a little more. The actress and activist Celia Keenan-Bolger is part of a drive to provide dinners to essential hospital workers every night. You can give a little money to that effort, and her link is on my website at lisabernbach.com. Number two, so many people have gone over and above the call of duty. For example, Broadway star Brian Stokes Mitchell, who recently recovered from COVID, now sings his trademark song, The Impossible Dream, because he was the man of La Mancha on Broadway, from his apartment window every single evening. A link to that is also on my blog at lisabernbach.com. I also just learned on Facebook that a friend's son who practices medicine in Louisville, Kentucky, is now en route to New York to volunteer in an emergency room at NYU Hospital. It is vital to remind ourselves that there are wonderful, decent people, that decency and goodness is innate or are innate because they're plurals. Number three, making your bed every day. Now, in telling you this, I am reminding myself too. If we forget to make our bed in the morning, it sends the message that you're only temporarily up or you're going back to sleep and you're not set for the day. And strangely, an open bed is not welcoming. The made bed says you're ready for your day. Number four, try to use your new exercise equipment every day, if only for a short time. And if you're like me, you've bought some new equipment. And number five, Dr. Anthony Fauci, whomever he officially reports to now or in the future, he is our beacon of scientific truth. I worry about his safety and health the way I worry about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's, and I am so grateful when he appears on our TV daily. In conclusion, friends, stay home, stay safe, only go out when absolutely necessary, but act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.